We have a high threshold for pain. I mean, compared to making comics, making a podcast is nearly as painful. Yeah, way more true. fun. Pretty easy. Yeah, like <laughs> I don't have to do it all myself. Yeah. <laughs> how how long would it take to draw the number of pages it would take to, that you could read in an hour? Oh my god. Ooh. Yeah. Years. Podcasting is simple. This is his cake. <laughs> this is the one thing that I I find to be the most tragic about comics is that someone can labor for like several years on a comic and someone who buys that comic can read it in like an hour. <laughs> yeah, so but if it's a really good comic, that reader will keep coming back to it. And if it's a really good comic, true. they'll keep finding new things in it every time they return. That's true. And That's true. at least we're not animators. <laughs> Yeah. Because it's like that been The worse. resounding chorus of the cartoonist <laughs> At least we're not animators <laughs> or, or poets <laughs> Poets are fine, I like poets Yeah, you can write a poem super fast yeah. <laughs> Might not be good 575, no. five. done <laughs> You just want to be an animator in Vancouver, apparently Oh Well, you don't want to be anything in Vancouver Yeah, yeah. Oh. don't be in Vancouver <laughs> oh. Welcome back to the Trade Waiters. Uh, I like our new theme song. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's it's our book today? Um, we are reading um, Sacred Heart by Liz Suburbia. How do we start this? Um, what character, is the character revealing, revealing question? question. Okay. So, please tell me who you are and what your favorite conspiracy theory is. Okay. Well, Kathleen gave us a, a slight advanced knowledge of what the question was, so I actually have one ready this time. Uh, my name is Jonathan Dalton, and I have to say that most conspiracy theories just make me mad, but once in a while there's one that's like, hmm, maybe that has some validity, whether it's based on fact or not. And one of those has to be the idea that no child left behind, which is the, if you haven't heard of that, it's the policy in the U.S. that is supposed to not leave children behind in school. The conspiracy theory is that it is designed to do the exact opposite of that because if you actually look at the policy, it does the opposite of what it says it's going to do in every respect. <laughs> All right. But what was the motive? I don't know if we're getting into <laughs> okay, this. Okay, okay. Uh, no Child Left Behind is supposed to improve the quality of work that kids do. It's supposed to give more power to local authorities. Uh, and it does the opposite uh, on both counts. It widens the gap between rich schools and poor schools and takes power away from local authorities in poor schools. If they have bad test results, it gives control of that school to the state rather than to the community. That sounds like bad policy, but not necessarily a conspiracy. For it to be a conspiracy, people have had to have a reason to profit on it being really bad policy. Well, mm. that depends on whether you consider maintaining the gap between rich and poor to be okay. profitable. Okay. Right. So it was a conspiracy in order, it was a kind of new To maintain order. the status quo. All yeah. right. Right. Okay. Uh, so I guess it's me? Sure. Uh, so my name's Jeff Ellis, and I was going to say my favorite conspiracy theory is that the oil industry bought up all the streetcars and then forced everyone to start driving around by ruining streetcar service, but that's a real thing. That's not a conspiracy. <laughs> that actually happened. And yeah, much like Jonathan, I find when you start to delve into the motivations of a conspiracy, none of it ever makes sense. So I'm just going to say what my favorite conspiracy theory is. I don't believe this, but I think it's hilarious, which is that the world is controlled by shape-changing lizard men. And there is a man named David Icke who's very outspoken about this, and he has lots of essays and public talks that he'll give. And the saddest part is he'll make really cogent points about things up until a certain level and you're like oh wow there's this real deficiency in this election it really seems like they're pushing people's attention oh and then he starts talking about shape changing lizard man you're like oh never mind oh. <laughs> <laughs> like kind of makes sense and then suddenly he just goes crazy bananas and you're like oh oh i've been wasting my time watching this youtube video <laughs> <laughs> i've heard people say that like 
using the idea of lizard men as a coded way to talk about Jewish people? I've heard Someone this too. told me that too. And if that's true, then that's an awful conspiracy. I if they don't if that's not true and it's just shape changing lizard men, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> So, uh, I'm not what I would consider a conspiracy buff. Who are you, by the way? Uh, yeah. <laughs> did we not a conspiracy buff. My name is Angela Malk, and I don't consider myself a conspiracy buff because there's enough terrible true things in the world to obsess about <laughs> uh, without going down the rabbit hole of elaborate conspiracy theories, but they are very entertaining. And the most entertaining one to me is that Michael Jackson wrote the soundtrack to Sonic 3. What? That's my favorite out there conspiracy theory. Ooh. And there's whole websites dedicated to this and proving that of course there are. Michael Jackson wrote the soundtrack to Sonic 3 secretly uncredited. And I think it's amazing. And I love it. And I want it to be true just because it's the most outlandish, ridiculous thing. I'm Kay Gross. And um, my favorite conspiracy theory, which I also am not like a conspiracy theory buff because I am too easily... I believe things too easily. I would just get in too deep and be like, hmm, this is making a lot of good points. Uh, <laughs> but I do enjoy a bizarre celebrity uh, conspiracy theories, and one of my favorites is that one of the One Direction boys had a baby, and there's like a series of there's like a group of fans that truly believe that this baby is fake and like the only reason they're pushing this baby on social media is to cover up an illicit romance between him and another One Direction boy. (laughs) (laughs) Like you get so deep and they're like showing photos and they're like this photo is in black and white because it's easier to manipulate black and white photographs and it's clearly a photoshop from this other celebrity's (laughs) baby photo. Wow. And by the time you get to the end, you're like, yeah, no, I believe this. <laughs> this seems legit. <laughs> yeah, that's the level of conspiracy theories I enjoy. <laughs> One of the One Direction boys has a fake baby. That's fake not a baby. fact. Yeah. We put it on the internet. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> All right, so um, I guess we should get into talking about Sacred Heart. I think this is another book where we should have a uh, spoiler warning, though. Oh, yeah. Because the end of the book is pretty important to understanding the book. So if you have not yet read this book, you may want to do that before you listen to the rest of the episode. Yeah, trying to, like, recommend this book to people is difficult because, like, the end of the book is so, like, pivotal and gives context to the entire book. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also, like, the first time you read it through, you shouldn't know what that is, mm-hmm. I think. Well, at a high level, I would uh, I would jump on your recommendation, though. I'm really, really glad you recommended this book, because I'd never heard of it, and I wouldn't have read it otherwise, and I thought it was totally worth reading. And yes. I really enjoyed it. So, if you're thinking about it, just stop and get it. It's awesome. great. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah, I initially picked up this book because I was like, Liz Suburbia, that's the coolest name I've ever heard! <laughs> yeah. um, and also, I'm like a sucker for it. I don't know, I just... I was not raised particularly Christian, although we did go to church, but I'm such a sucker for books that, like, have Christian imagery and, like, deal with, like, complicated relationships to the church. Mm -hmm. I I just find them really fascinating. But uh, this book centers around, like, this community of teenagers in um, this sort of... uh, It's kind of a town, kind of like a closed community called Alexandria, and um, it sort of centers on this girl named Ben and her best friend Otto, and Ben's kind of taking care of her... A sister, Empathy, who's maybe two years younger than her, and um, these kids are kind of doing typical garbage like punk teen things, like they're having show, like punk shows, they're playing sports, they're hanging out at school, they're like going to parties and like driving around and whatever, but there don't seem to be any adults, and mm-hmm. it sort of becomes apparent as you read that like they, there are no adults here. This is just a community of teenagers, and also people just die. Like, bodies turn up, and um, it's just sort of, like, something that's taken as fab. Like, oh, well, you know, he drowned in the river or whatever. Or, like, I just came across his body in the woods, and no one really looks into it or holds anyone accountable for it. (laughs) And the only time you see an adult in the book is at one point, it's a sort of odd sequence where Ben's walking through town, and she comes across this guy who seems to be dressed in, like, first aid or like relief worker outfit and I kind of make eye contact and he just sort of runs away from her and then there's like a helicopter 
Yeah. Paid. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of like, what's going on there? And then Ben and her friend Otto sort of wind up by uh, experimenting with a relationship together. And Ben is having like this really difficult time with her sister Empathy, who just seems to disappear and be really disconnected. And eventually, Ben finds out that her si- sister Empathy has been killing people. She hasn't killed all of the teens, but she certainly killed a fair amount of the boys who've died. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, like. It sort of jumps around between different uh, characters within this community, but it really focuses on Ben. And I mean, you find out that Ben's name is Benevolence. Empathy and, and Benevolence. Yes. That and was a so good reveal. I would never have guessed her name. I, I liked it. I was thinking the whole time. And I'm glad it did reveal it. And I'm yeah. glad yes. that it provided like a little bit of extra emotional punch at the end of it. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. And like the book ramps up to basically this biblical flood at the end of the book where it just starts raining and the community is flooded and empathy has crawled onto a mattress that's floating in the middle of, of the street and then it cuts to a picture of a newspaper that says, Cult compound obliterated by storm of the century. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, Brings up so many more questions when you get to yeah. the end. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So I, it's kind of a hard book to summarize for that reason because there's so much going on. Um, so I'd really love to hear. Uh, oh, sorry, I should say some stuff about Liz Suburbia too. Yeah, this is uh, Suburbia's first full-length book. She's done a lot of short comics. Yeah, I have uh, one of her mini-comics or something. Yeah, she has like a little, I think it's like a zine or mini-comic series, like Cyanide Milkshake. That's the one I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. she has another book, I think it's called Egg Cream Number 1, coming out from Chat Books uh, in 2017. I'm super psyched, I backed the Kickstarter, I'm so ready to get that. Uh, and she says that she makes comics about dogs and punks. <laughs> 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 and I think she lives in Virginia. So yeah, what did you guys think about this book? I was blown away. Mm -hmm. So I really liked this book. Uh, I liked that I was... It took me a while to to get myself acclimated to it, I would say. Like, it starts very mysteriously. You're not given a lot of info. You're given little clues about the the characters and the situation that you're in. And you're very much slowly getting... The information that you get is kind of on an IV drip. Like, it's very, very slow. But what was really interesting to me in this book is that very quickly I got on board with these characters and I was very much invested in their interpersonal drama so that the point of the IV drip of background information didn't seem that much of a problem anymore and then when it all comes out at the end as a rush you're like oh what because it as you said it recontextualizes everything you've been reading and so it's funny because the experience of reading this for the first time is going to be something I can't repeat but I'm excited to maybe read it again so yeah, I was super invested in these characters and the world. I thought it was probably one of the most accurate books that captured the feeling of being a teen to me. Just that, that aspect of hanging out with your friends and driving around and like how problems are filtered down to you as a teen and how your you know, those kind of awkward teen relationships that are very important at that time in your life, it's just it was so it felt so real so real and so raw and I was drawn in completely and I really loved it. I love this book. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think this was a really, really enjoyable read and I think, I mean, I find my tastes always tend to run like a little darker and this just was like, oh man, like look at all these dead bodies. This is right up my alley. No, I, <laughs> but like seriously, it, it, I like things that are a little bit kind of dark and mysterious and this had that right feel to it. Um, I actually kind of I was thinking about it, this, to me, it sort of felt like um, a David Lynch movie as a comic, Hmm. in that, like, the thing about David Lynch's movies that I like is just that it has this palpable atmosphere and these great scenes, and whether it all strings together in, like, a coherent narrative is irrelevant, it's just the experience of the atmosphere and the scenes, and so, like, I was just really... I enjoyed the atmosphere, and I liked a lot of the little kind of almost like sidebar, like the tangents that were like coming out. And I I really appreciated that there were some reveals that sort of brought the narrative together at the end. But if it had just been kind of ambiguous, I would have been okay with that because to me it was just like the journey that I found really enjoyable. And um, it's funny, like I read that entire book, and I didn't really click to the fact that there were no adults until I read that newspaper 
clipping at the end, and I had to go back and like reread the the comic a second time because I think that I was looking at this almost like um, like the movie Brick as well, which is a teen story, but it's from the perspective of teens, so they seem to be in this like alien sort of world where adults are very divorced from their interactions, and so. I guess I didn't really question, like, that... I just assumed that maybe there was a police investigation happening off-camera somewhere and that we're just focused on these teens and their lives. And it was only after, like, getting to the end of this book where I was like, oh, like, all these people have just been dying and nothing's been happening and they're just in isolation. And and so I had to go back, and that's where I, like, marked page 170 as, like, the adult shows up. Like, it's the one time (laughs) you see an adult, like... Yeah, it was I was crazy. Um, so it just added something more, just having that big twist at the end. So just the, I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, on balance, I enjoyed this book. Uh, I'm going to recommend this book at the end of the episode. Uh, I found it very frustrating up until the last page, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing in a book. I think some books are designed to be frustrating and difficult to read. Uh, I think this fits in that category, but. Uh, like, I figured out pretty early on in the process that there were no adults and that this was a, a town without adults for some reason, with no explanation. And I kept coming up with all these world-building questions. Like, if there's no adults, why hasn't anyone gone for help? Like, why hasn't anyone made contact with the outside world? Clearly the outside world still exists because they're getting TV. Why hasn't society either completely fallen apart or why hasn't, hasn't everyone just left? Or why haven't they someone come to, to help them? And so all of those things make sense on the last page, where suddenly, oh, of course they're not going to make contact with the outside world. They've probably been raised in isolation and instilled with this fear of contact with the outside world, even if they haven't adopted the entirety of whatever their parents' beliefs were. But, so at that point, then for me it became a great book. But until then, I just kept having all these questions that demanded answers, and (laughs) either the answers were missing and it was a fault of the writer, or, as it turned out, there was more information that we just didn't have yet. Like, there was a a point in the story where uh, one of the teens is telling the story about, like, a giant turtle skeleton. yes. And when we got to that point, like, in retrospect, it's a completely ridiculous story, but when we got to that point, I was so desperate for answers that I thought, (laughs) aha, this is it. They're living in some weird fantasy world and the (laughs) goblins have eaten their parents or something. Well, see, I don't necessarily (laughs) think that that... Because there's some weird things that happen in this book. Like, um, Ben winds up with various marks of, like, stigmata on her, like, throughout the book, and there's, like, these surreal aspects. So it's like, maybe it did happen, maybe it didn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think you can interpret it either way. Okay. Yeah, and I would say that that particular scene you're referencing is where I really felt like this is a David Lynch movie made as a comic, because that is just... That is quintessential in the sense that we're following all these people and then we're at a party and there's a guy with an eye patch and then someone's like how did you lose like it, do, is that fake and he goes no I really lost my eye and it's like well how did that happen and then suddenly you're off on this crazy meandering narrative about them going to the water and then seeing like a a cave and then going into the cave and seeing a turtle skeleton and getting attacked by gremlins and one of the gremlins biting out his eye like and that that has nothing to do with anything, right? Like yeah. it doesn't tell you about it. Like, like, yeah, and that's the thing. Like it just and then just leaves. And like to me, that's like that's quintessential uh, to that sort of style of storytelling. Of like it's this great scene. It's super spooky. Like I love the way it builds up, and then like the gremlin show up. And you're like, what the hell? There's gremlins in this world. But it's like him telling a story to someone. It's like a story within a story, which I'm a sucker for. Like, but it's great because like it just it adds to the atmosphere. And it totally doesn't need to be there, right? It doesn't tell you about cult. It doesn't tell you about who's killing these teens. Well, we know it just that contributes now. to the. <laughs> well, but that's thing. It contributes to the atmosphere and poses, leaves the reader maybe asking questions like, "What does this have to do with anything? Yeah. Like, when does the turtle come back?" <laughs> <laughs> so waiting for that turtle. <laughs> for me, I was I think somewhere between. Uh, John and Jeff, where uh, Jeff didn't clue in until the end that the adults were all gone, and John included in too frustratingly at the beginning. For me, it happened, as I said, like as an IV drip, which I think happened at just the perfect pace, which I think made it such a, a wonderful experience for me. So at the beginning, I, it was clear that Ben's parents were gone. 
And then I slowly started to clue in. It's like, wait, other parents are also gone. What's up with that? Like, because there were just a few things where, like, where, where is your parents? <laughs> you know? Oh, I, I think and I know. Sorry, I think I know why I realized this at the beginning because I now have a print version which I got like two hours ago. Okay. Thanks, Indigo. Um, but I, so I had to read it on Comixology, and it has the back cover as like the second page. Oh, oh yeah. And so on the back cover, it tells you that there are no parents. So I guess I knew that going in. Yeah. So I think I read that as well, but I didn't take it as literally okay. as because like, it says it seems like there's no parents. Right, right, right. But it's weird because you pick it up like in the shops. There's no one running the shop. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's a difference between no parents and no adults, right? Yeah. And so when I read that that summary, I thought, oh, there's no parents in the sense that kind of like, oh, the, the world of teens, like, where are your parents? Like yeah. kind of an ironic, not a, yeah. there are literally no adults in this town. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And like yeah, rereading it, I it, it sort of dawned on me that there's so many shocking incidents that would demand immediate adult response that don't get dealt with. Like, <laughs> like they burn the movie theater down yeah, they and nobody cares. Like, well, they care, but they're like, man, now we can't see movies. It's just like this is very accurate, like, teens are dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yes, of course they'd be fooling around in a movie theater and accidentally set grain alcohol on fire and just like set the whole thing on fire because like, oh no, I don't know, it's not my fault. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. S- somebody else deal with it. Well, like, but yeah, see, I, I guess I didn't think about it at the time, but it's like they set the grain alcohol on fire and set the theater on fire and then the teen that's running the projector comes out and is like, dude, not cool. But then you don't see, like, a manager being like, you, I'm going to sue your parents and your parents and your parents. Like, none, there's no response, right? Yeah. It's just the theater burns down and that's it. Even yeah. little things like the, like, Otto has a broken nose at the start, but and he's got, a, like, a Band-Aid on it. Yeah. And he doesn't know whether his nose is broken or not. It's like, you could get someone to look at that, but no, he can't. He right. can't. Yeah. There's, yeah. like, this scene that I really like later on in the book where it, like, starts to become very apparent that, like, something weird was going on with their parents, which, like, once you get to the end, you're like, oh, it was a cult. Oh, okay. Where they're, like, it's after they've sort of gotten together, and they're just, like, hanging out um, and talking, and it's sort of about how benevolence and empathy are weird names, and then, like, empathy says, well, we can't be more than a few weeks out, right? And uh, Otto's like, well, wasn't someone keeping a calendar? She's like, not since Claudia Bustamante. Oh man, we could be way off. Do you think they're really coming back? There, were, there was that, and then there was a point I think soon after that where they were talking about like uh, she didn't want it to be like last winter. Yes, it's and like that the, exactly was like a, that was the holy next crap. page. She's like, I'm just so mad all the time, and I have so many questions, but I don't want to have to go through another winter like last one. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So everything I thought about like. Uh, why have, hasn't their little society pulled together? Like, considering the, how long they've been alone, they've probably pulled together pretty well. Well, yeah. this is one of the things that I find really, really <laughs> interesting. Uh, well, there's two aspects that I'd like to discuss. The first is how it does not feel at all like they are the family of a religious cult. Mm-hmm. So the, the punk atmosphere running throughout, that seems to be ubiquitous among the teens. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, there's no one among them except maybe the two spiritualists who tell psychic readings from the roof. Megadon. Yeah, Megadon. There's no one among them who is like, no, we need to stick to these religious ways. We need to, you know, continue our rituals. Things that you would expect, not that I have that much experience with it, that you would expect to continue in uh, children who are raised among a religious cult. And the other thing that I found super strange, what was it? So it was the punk atmosphere, and then the fact that they do keep other rituals. So despite there's no adults telling them where to do, what to do or where to be, they hold football matches, they hold a school dance, they all hang out at school. Yeah. They don't do anything. They put posters up and communicate with each other. So there is some semblance of truck structure, but it's all based on the teens' priorities, mm. which is interesting and weird. Mm. Yeah, it's like when everything, disi- like when any sort of sense of structure disappears, what do you cling to? Yeah. Mm. They, fo- they have football games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I could imagine that, though, that the football players at the school would still want to play a game. Yeah. They they also um, have access to a pretty tremendous amount of infrastructure because, like... And food. They haven't uh, run out of food. Well, yeah, they have well, all this food, but, like, I mean... One complains about... Uh, Jen complains about running out of cigarettes. So it sounds, seems like they're starting to get mm. to the end. Right. But, yeah, like, I mean, they... they Like, auto-silk-screening T-shirts and, like, the band... What was it? The Crotchman... 
Was that it? <laughs> uh, yeah. They have like eight tracks that they're selling, right? So they have the ability to record their music and sell it. They still have power. Yeah, they still have electricity. They're still watching videos and you know, or watching DVDs, right? So yeah, like they still have access to a lot of resources, which makes it really intriguing because then you're like, well, if the parents are gone, what did they leave them with? <laughs> right? How did they get themselves this self-sufficient, really? Well, but they hang out at the 7-Eleven at one point, and they're in it, and they're like, do you want beer or ice cream? So it seems like they've been maybe raiding the stores. It's like, uh, there's, there's still more questions than answers. Like, where did all these adults go? Yeah, it sort of seemed like there was someone who was, like, an, uh, an older teen who was kind of in charge of the shops because uh, mm. there was a question about, like, oh, is it cool to take this stuff? And he's like, no, nah, yeah, I'm paid up. Like, it's fine. Take whatever. Yeah. Um, like, uh, uh, for me at least, a lot of this can be successfully hand waved by the fact that it was uh, a weird cult that we know nothing about. Mm. So I think a lot depends on what exactly was this cult. Because obviously, when they did their equivalent of whatever other cults have done, where they all commit mass suicide, the, the adults didn't include the kids, which a lot of other cults would have done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, could be that their sort of their cult culture is just amongst the adults and that most of it is kept a secret from the kids on purpose so that maybe they're not really indoctrinated fully into that weird culture and just get little bits and pieces of it. One theory that I had is that it's a cult slash social experiment. Hmm. So the adults actually set this up as an experiment saying, we'll be back kids, we'll give you everything you need. They're funding the town. Mm. They're funding the power just to see what happens when a bunch of teens run their own town. Their own version of, a twisted version of Lord of the Flies. That seems worse than committing mass suicide. (laughs) It does seem worse, but it explains some things. It explains why the resources are still in place. It explains why no one's gone out and tried to save these kids, which they obviously know exist, right? If there was a town uh, abandoned, I feel like, especially a cop or that that aid worker, so maybe the reason that he didn't help her is because he's trying to figure out the situation on the ground but doesn't actually have permission from the parents to intervene. Mm. Yeah, or the, I mean, there's often with cults, like, they're sort of, like, separate and outside, so people are just like, oh, it's the weird cult, we don't go there, so there wouldn't be the same kind of, like, monitoring what's going yeah. on and wouldn't necessarily know that things have, like, gone off the rails. Yeah. Too quickly. Well, like, I interpreted that as being this is the first time when the outside world has figured out something is horribly wrong in this town is when that guy shows up. Yeah. Well, he's, um, the first thing you see him doing is uh, making a phone call or yeah. calling on the radio, and then you see the helicopter overhead. So this might be the outside world finally going like, "What the hell?" Like, like I assume <laughs> that they would have known that there was a cult here because governments usually do, but maybe they didn't realize until this point that there had been this mass suicide. They just assumed that the town was running as normal. And maybe the parents had sort of set up for a kind of of end-of-the-world scenario where they had stockpiles of food and, like, their electricity bills paid up in advance or something or their own personal, like, power plant or generator or something that they'd built. So uh, there's there's a lot of unknowns about who the parents were and what their plan was. And I think those unknowns, for me at least make everything kind of fit together enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, without that last page, I would have left off being very, very frustrated <laughs> that mm-hmm. none of those questions even had a hint of an answer. I mean, that last page is like, that's a great ending. <laughs> like, you want to end your comic series, man? Just that one newspaper floating on the water? Boom. Mm-hmm. There we go. Mm-hmm. This is like slightly unrelated to all the uh, conspiracies and, and and the sort of theories here. But one one thing I really liked about this work is that uh, every time they watch a movie, it's a real movie, and I know what movie they're watching by the scenes. I had no idea. And I would love to sit down and watch movies with Liz Suburbia because <laughs> we apparently dig the same movies. Like, uh, the mov- I'm, I'm, I haven't 100% confirmed this, but I'm fairly certain the movie they're watching... When the movie theater burns down, is Ginger Snaps? It is. Okay. Um, yeah, I was uh, reading, there's a really great interview with Liz Suburbia on TCJ on the Comics Journal website, and uh, the person who interviews her is Annie Mock, who is fantastic and, like, I think is a very good interviewer, so it's it's a great interview to read if you want to know more about, okay. like, Suburbia and, like, what was she was thinking when she was making this. 
book. Um, right. But yeah, she said that it was, you know, she likes ginger snaps and uh, Perfect, some other yeah. things. So. Yeah, and then like when her and Otto are on the uh, couch and they sort of have their first intimate moment, they're watching Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. And I um, think even um, Boy Meets World shows yeah. up at one point. Boy Meets World, yes, <laughs> Meets the Future. Yeah, and then like at the very end, he's watching Kill Bill. It's like all of those, I was just like, Oh, yeah, no, seen it, seen it, seen it. I know the movie you're referencing. It actually made me curious about, and I don't want Liz to get in trouble here, but I'm curious about the copyright of just taking dialogue from a movie uh, and doing your own cartoon of the characters on a TV screen. I I think you're okay if it's small quotes from uh, a TV show or a movie. I think... um, Because they seem accurate. Music is harder. Music is different, Because I know E.K. Weaver went through this. She uses quotes from songs as her as her title chapters and she had a really hard time getting mm-hmm. approval for that well she she went through the licensing process to get that like even uh, there's a I can't remember which Neil Gaiman book it is it might have been American Gods where he complains about the difficulty in getting quotes from songs as like in between chapters so even if you are Neil Gaiman who has a publisher and like every resource in the world getting music in your book is pretty tricky so to all comicers out there, basically just don't even try putting real music in your comic. There's a great um, sequence in, I think, the first volume of Sex Criminals, which is Chip Starsky and Matt Fraction, where they couldn't get the rights to Queen, um, so Bohemian Rhapsody. So instead, it's like this big, long scene, and in every single speech balloon where she's singing Bohemian Rhapsody, there's sticky notes that are just... Like, talking about, well, we couldn't get the rights to this, so please just imagine, this is what's going on. Um, and it's quite funny. Uh, one of the things, just on the music train, is I really liked how music was depicted in this. There's this great scene where Jenna, um, oh, this yeah. uh, girl, uh, she's the singer in The Crotchman is killed, and they hold auditions, and she's like, okay, I'm in your band now. And she's she great. I like her. And she was a better lead. Stage, and she, everyone's, like, making fun of her because she's fat, and she gets on stage and just blows their minds, and there's no, like, cliche. You don't see the lyrics, you don't see any music notes, but the way um, Suburbia draws it, where it's just, like, these abstract, like, blobby shapes taking over the panel, like, coming up from her and like blowing the skin off of um, the skulls of the people watching and it's like these shapes and these blobs like coming in between the people dancing and Mm -hmm. surrounding them it's like that is what it feels like to be at like a really good concert yeah and I thought it really lended itself to the overall atmosphere because you find it in earlier scenes at parties and stuff and I noticed Mm -hmm. it early on I really really liked that interpretation Yeah. yeah it it really evokes the feeling. Um, I w- in, in the interview with Annie Mock, she was saying, you know, it can be really cliche and like s- just seeing lyrics, like that doesn't feel like music in a comic. Yeah. Mm. It's something that's always uh, of great personal interest to me of how people depict atmospheric sound and other kind of background sound in the interaction between people and sound because you're translating it into a very visual, soundless medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have the advantage of speech bubbles, so some people will. And the, the manga way is to kind of make onomatopoeia of what you're trying to describe in sound. And Liz here, she has her atmospheric bubbles, but she also does things like sneak. You know, like she'll yeah. do uh, descriptive words as sound effects, which is another method that I've seen. I've also seen like jaggy lines describing the shape of the sound rather than the actual alliteration of it. So it's, it's something that I'm always looking at in comics and always very interested in. Mm-hmm. No, it's really cool. I really like the way she draws characters. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I noticed uh, early on was, well, it's, it's obviously very prevalent in her work, is that she uses a slit eye mm-hmm. instead of a, a normal pupil. And for me, it's, it had the effect of making everyone seem baseline kind of threatening. Hmm. So where a lot of people will try to make their characters as relatable as possible and bring you in as much as you can, from the very beginning, I felt... You know, whoa, Ben is really interesting and I'm compelled and I'm rooting for her even from the start, but I'm not so sure about her. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so sure about anyone that she's interacting with, despite the fact that they're presented as friends. Right. It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, for sure. And, sorry, just because I turned this page because I talked about the movie references, but does anyone remember the scene and can anyone explain it to me? Yeah, so <laughs> we're talking about page 290 yeah. when. Uh, 
a person appears in Otto's room unexpectedly. I assume that's and disappears Otto. instantly. Yeah. So he has a different nose. Does he? Yeah. yeah, that was that was the one thing. Like looking at it, the nose is a bit different. But um, and they have a shaved head. Oh yeah, that's true too. And they're wearing a full broad panties and garter belt. But it's a, a, a male, I think. So like, um, like I was reading this interview and it was sort of talking a little bit about some of the stuff that was going on in the periphery of this comic, which I definitely noticed more coming to reading it a second time when I was more able to take in those things I hadn't taken in before. Which is that there's some very much on the periphery, like gender and sexuality stuff going on. That's never really stated explicitly, but um, you can see with Otto, like even that scene where he comes dressed up in a dress, and there's sort of this moment where he's like playing it off as like uh, a jokey, funny thing, and then the way how Ben reacts, he sort of realizes that it, it's not funny, and then she sort of fixes up his face because he doesn't know how to do makeup, and it's mm. sort of. I think that scene is also just playing into him uh, exploring a little bit or like having this relationship with the idea that his sexuality or gender identity might be different than how he was raised. Hmm. I think it's... I kind of felt like that scene read a little bit like the turtle scene, just in the sort of like, I'm just accepting that something kind of odd is happening right Right. now and it may be real and actual and it may not be. yeah, like I. Yeah, I, that's that's. Yeah, yeah. That's oh yeah, I mean, it definitely is a scene that contributes to the atmosphere without necessarily answering any questions. But like, this was one where I was like, I don't quite get mm-hmm. what you're telling. I don't get what you're telling me, Liz. But um, looking at it again, <laughs> I I do think that that's Otto. Hmm. <laughs> that, in my opinion. Yeah, that was my initial read on it as well. But which is why I went and looked at the characters and tried to really understand that. I'm not 100% convinced, but I could okay. be convinced. Uh, but I, I, I kind of agree with you, Kathleen, and said it's a indicator that they're kind of losing it, maybe. That mm. and the stigmata as well, where it's like yes. you're starting to become unhinged. We're not really sure anymore if this is... Well, it seems like you're not really sure of anything. Mm, yeah, and with good reason, because no one's told them anything. They don't know what's happened to their parents. Like, we can assume, once we know that this was a cult, like, as a reader, you're just going to understand, oh, obviously, they probably committed suicide. We don't really know that for sure, but... See, I didn't assume that. Really? I mm-hmm. assumed that the parents had left to go go do something. Like, mm-hmm. either they were going on a journey, and this was, like, a, a set thing... Uh, but maybe also I did just come out of reading a different book about cults, where, like, the cult leader would go on a journey every year and, like, go out and get resources and bring them back. So I kind of assumed that maybe this was a journey the parents had gone on to, like, get resources or do something like that, and they were supposed to come back and they didn't. Okay. Is how I read it. Okay. Yeah, I had a similar interpretation, where the parents had told them that they were leaving and actually did leave and either were misleading them with when they would be back or were unable to return. But I'm not sure. It doesn't make sense when 100% of the adulthood population does that. Mm -hmm. But I think if they had committed suicide, even kids raised in a cult would not be so naive to assume. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not unfamiliar with death. These kids Mm -hmm. aren't actually that naive. And they're quite old. So Mm -hmm. to say if they really believed that their parents had I don't know. I think it would take quite a bit to convince them that they were actually leaving and not just committing suicide and coming back. Yeah. Okay. Like maybe well, they prepared a lot of equipment when they were going, or they had a very specific plan. I mean, if they if they had committed suicide, they didn't leave any evidence this of is it, true right? Too. Like, there's no mass graves, right? Well, whatever well, happened, they there's told Fort Hunt Park. Yeah, but those are all teens. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's not for the parents. Yeah. Um, like wh- whatever happened, their parents told them they were leaving and coming back, mm-hmm. and now they're gone. Yeah, or they haven't come back. Yeah. I found... Uh, what did you guys think about the scene where Ben um, finds out that her sister Empathy is the one who's been killing people? Oh, it was interesting and difficult. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it would have been hard for Ben no matter what, and she's conflicted between, oh my god, my sister kills people, and I really need to protect my sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I found was even more interesting after that was the reveal, because you think, oh... Empathy's killed everyone. Mm-hmm. But no, very immediately after that, you're like, oh, actually, I killed someone. Oh, I killed someone. And so she's not the only one mm-hmm. who is responsible for having killed people. Mm-hmm. Well, even, uh, I mean, rereading it, like, very early on in the story, they just lead in with, like, it's very clearly, like, 
like Eric and Vanessa, it's like uh, Tyler and Vanessa were a couple, and then Vanessa cheats on Tyler at the party, and then basically the next scene is Tyler comes into their house, and Eric and Vanessa are like, dude, get out of here, and he pulls out a knife, and then the next scene is them strung up in a tree, and someone finds their body, and it seems very clear that Tyler killed them, but then there's just no... No yeah. pursuit of that because there's no police because there's no investigation. It's just people like, oh man, huh, Eric and Vanessa are dead now. I wonder yeah. who killed them. Doop do 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 do. But <laughs> as I mentioned, it's interesting to see what aspects of structure the kids do take upon themselves to create and which ones they don't. This seems like it would be a pretty high priority. <laughs> <laughs> like establishing who killed each other and why. It seems like one of the survival. most difficult things to do, though, too, because someone then has to be the authority. Like that seems like that's the hardest thing to do is to have like an official authority. Like, you can have someone who's kind of a volunteer... Someone will volunteer to run the 7-Eleven, for example. And the people will accept it because if you want to go to the 7-Eleven, you have to deal with this person who's decided they're in charge of it. But to have someone to declare themselves the law seems um, very difficult. But wouldn't you agree that that's the tack that most other stories in this genre, let's say, have taken? I'm not saying that you're incorrect, and I'm not saying that Liz is incorrect for having made this choice, but it's interesting to me that mm. if you think of Lord of the Flies, or mm. other stories where I think about, like, oh, we left these kids alone for a little while, it seems very immediate for a hierarchy to develop in this genre mm. of fiction. Yeah, right. And that's true, because they basically are in zero hierarchy, right? Yeah. And the murders... It's total anarchy. The murders that are happening, it's like, I mean, there's jealousy, is that the, the last one I cited, like, Tyler and Eric and Vanessa, that's jealousy... Empathy mostly just seems like she's taking out on potential suitors that she feels jilted by in some of them, but not in all of them. So it's not even it's clear not what's clear. her motivation. Yeah, um, like, the, even the conversation with her is really like interesting because she, like, she says that she's the chosen, chosen one yeah. and that God chose her. And mom and dad and everyone always said to strike down evil. Benevolence is like I don't I don't think that's what they meant. Yeah, yeah. No, and yeah, and I interpreted that as her taking out people that she thinks are quote-unquote evil right? rather than mm-hmm. people who have wronged her personally necessarily. Right, I mean, there were some examples of people that may have wronged her, but yeah, there's definitely people that seemed like random bystanders, or not bystanders, but just random people as well. Um, and then when there's those confessions, the murder confessions mm. like on page 271, like, those seem... Cu- like in a, in a in a society with no law and order, those almost seem kind of legit. It's like yeah, some guy was gonna touch my little sister, so I just beat his head in, and like some guy was gonna take advantage of me, so I hit him in the head with a brick. It's like, well, if there's no police, yeah, I okay. came. Like I could see stuff like that happening. Yeah, it, like, <laughs> that's I, I guess at least in as the story is written, that's as far as they've got towards establishing any kind of justice in their little world. Like, in, in those examples, it's just like, well, if you don't want to get killed, just don't don't bother people. <laughs> or don't be evil and have empathy go after you. Yeah. Which also, like, it's such a nice touch that someone who is committing so many murders is named Empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What did you guys think about the art? Art was good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I love how she uses black. Yes. But what was also really interesting to me beyond the black was how she uses pattern. Hmm. So what you'll notice in this work is that it's black and white and no grayscale. There's no grayscale whatsoever. And instead, you see a really artful use of pattern and texture, which I think is really, really well done and adds. So despite the fact that there's not a lot of line weight variation, uh, there's a lot of simplicity and there's a lot of spot black, it still manages to retain a lot of depth and interest. Uh, so I really liked the art. And mm-hmm. I found it really engaging and immediate. One interesting thing I found out was, like, this book was originally serialized as a webcomic starting in 2010, but then she went back and redrew it. Whoa. Really? So, like, she went back and redrew it and edited it, and so this is not the original webcomic, this is an edited, redrawn version. It's a lot of uh, work. Which is, yeah, that's a <laughs> lot of work, and that's really impressive, but... What, did it go to the yeah. end as a webcomic? I mean... Uh, yeah, I think so. It's, um, from what I was reading up, it sounds like, you know, the way she had, like, certain things online didn't really get resolved, and she sort of did some other things differently when she was putting it into this okay. book, but I think that's really neat. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I know no one in this room can relate to redrawing pages from your webcomic <laughs> before you go to print. <laughs> 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 Once I did it by accident. <laughs> It's a joke because I did my whole fir first book that way, and John does it a lot as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard not to. Uh, no regrets. Oh, yeah, yeah no. Yeah, it's, it's so hard to edit comics when they're not comics, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Also, yeah. it's hard to edit comics if you didn't draw it digitally. As much as I mm. much prefer to draw on paper... Like, if you draw it digitally, it's easier to fix things and change things, move things. Yeah. yeah. But I love, I love that. Faces like that. Just the big mouth with the teeth in it. <laughs> I'm she's so expressive. Yeah, she's so expressive. And um, I don't know, the way she draws bodies is really nice, too. Yeah, like, I like it as well. She gets the teen slump down. Like, <laughs> and just the way people sit and move about is just... Um, really indicative of their characters and, and feels natural and real. And their bodies feel real as well. Mm -hmm. Like, the way their bodies are depicted are really realistic, and uh, the proportions aren't perfect, and no one is perfect in this work, and I think that's that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I really liked it. I really liked the way that the characters are drawn in this book. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, I was kind of curious why um, the sisters had all these, like, kind of lines, like... I didn't quite know how to read those. Like, they weren't. They didn't seem like hair. They just seemed like almost like texture lines or something. I think they're multi-purpose. In some instances, it seems like they're probably freckles. In other instances, they might be hair. Other instances, they might just be like, um, like part of like building a face kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I also saw them as maybe like skin imperfections. Mm -hmm. Maybe just a very stylized way of showing that. Actually, freckles, I didn't think about freckles, because she does lines for the pupils, so why not do lines for the freckles as well? Yeah, I interpreted it as freckles, but I'm not 100% sure. I think maybe skin imperfection is mm. or a, a better way to think about that. Mm -hmm. Like, it worked. It just, like, it, it stood out as a detail about the sisters, and I wasn't quite sure how to read it visually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, no, the really graphic beautiful stuff and just the way she handles the teen relationships I mean oh yeah yeah I don't know like I wish I could write something so like realistic like just the the sort of bewildering confusing nature of Otto and Ben's relationship I'm like that seems like a real relationship man I wish I wrote something like that like this, <laughs> you really hit it on the nail there yeah, as I yeah. mentioned, like it was probably the most authentic thing I've read about teens and kind of the shittiness of teen relationships, but how raw they really feel. You go to emotional places that you've obviously never been before, and you never quite go to them the same way again after your teenagerhood. And mm -hmm. it's, I really, as I mentioned, that was one of the things that drew me in at the work and sustained me. Like, I was really gripped by this work and interested in it because of those uh, relationships and the authenticity. And there were so many of them throughout the book. It wasn't just Ben and Otto. There were a lot of micro-relationships explored that all felt authentic. And the fact that the teens formed their own little network, and so there's these, uh, these interpersonal dramas, and there's these best friendships that were broken, and there's all these intricacies into their community that I felt so authentic and real that I didn't even care about the broader conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> I was invested in these teens. Mm -hmm. These punk teens. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Huff and paint in the parking lot. <laughs> up to no good. That's, that was just, yeah, that seemed like a very teen moment. Doing <laughs> each other tattoos in the way. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That no doctors in town if yeah. something goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked, I liked the, um, that felt like, um, I can see why Brandon Graham has the the recommendation on the back cover because I can see why this is his jam because like there's a lot of crossover in just the approach to the art style with the thin lines and the, the heavy blacks and that moment where she or that panel where she just breaks down how like Ben built the tattoo gun mm -hmm. like that just seems like a very Brandon Graham <laughs> style thing of just like here's the gear that our characters have and here's how it works <laughs> um yeah, though I have a friend that you, I used to work with that did tattoos, and she would be appalled uh, to know that people were using India ink to tattoo themselves. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not body safe! Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, any final thoughts? Um, 
It's a really good comic. Uh, you should read it. My life is improved <laughs> for having read this work. Um, I want to read it again uh, because I'm sure the second time I read it, I'll notice a lot more things I didn't notice the first time, and I'll be significantly less frustrated because things will make more sense. Yeah, this is a good book to read twice. <laughs> yeah. um, I obviously really enjoyed this book because I read it and then chose it for this podcast, and I'm very excited to uh, get her new book from Chat Books this year. Oh, yeah. Yay. Oh man, I know my shoutouts, okay. so I can go first. Um, I'm Kay Gross, and you can find my webcomic over at lunarmalities.com. And my shoutout is I'm still reading Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> still not done. The library is missing two volumes, so I had to read two plot synopses online, but I'm getting there. <laughs> right. It's good. The twists are still good, and I'm on volume 20. It's <laughs> impressive. Okay, I'm Jonathan Dalton, and you can find my work at phobos-comic.com. And my shout-out is going to be for an anthology called Moonshot, which I got off Kickstarter a year ago. This is how far deep my theory <laughs> pile is. Uh, it's edited by Hope Nicholson. Uh, it's all stories written by First Nations authors, artists. Uh, so far, I don't know that if any of the artists have been First Nations, but the writers all are. Really interesting stories, though. I just backed that on Kickstarter for the second edition. I know, I missed it because I hadn't read the first one yet. Oh no, well I can lend you <laughs> my digital copy of the second one. Okay. Uh, can that be my shout out? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> there was recently a Kickstarter, so volume two is coming out soon, but I haven't read it, so I'm excited to hear that you enjoyed it because I, I back it blind. Uh, and I'm Angela Malik. <laughs> <laughs> you have a Whatever. comic. Wastetown.ca. Don't All right. me. <laughs> um, all right, and then I'm Jeff Ellis. You can find my work at jeff-ellis.ca. And I'm, I'm just going to let everyone know that uh, Josie and the Pussycats are back. They just launched Volume 1, so you can't wait for the trade of that. Just pick it up now. Uh, Archie Comics, I know, needs your, needs your dollar. <laughs> um, the or, real underdog. Yeah, or even better, go read some Band vs. Band, because apparently some pretty uh, oh, yeah. penultimate stuff just happened in the last couple mm-hmm. pages. Mm-hmm. This is true. It's what we're thankful for this Canadian Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> Our next episode will be Americus by M.K. Reed and Jonathan Hill, so pick it up. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in their Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at www.cloudscapecomics.com or thetradewaiters.tumblr.com or find us on Google Play or SoundCloud, SoundCloud. Um, iTunes, iTunes. Yeah. We have a Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're in lots of places. We're everywhere. We're waiting for the trades. <laughs> Wait with us. <laughs> <laughs>